Hello, everyone. Welcome to America Daps, the climate change podcast. Hello, this is Doug Parsons, your host of America Daps, the climate change podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Nikhil Advani, the Senior Program Manager for Adaptation at the World Wildlife Fund. Nikhil and I will cover topics ranging from how wildlife like elephants, mountain gorillas, and pandas adapt to climate change. We'll also talk about how WWF is leading the communication charge on this issue. And we'll also discuss the differences between international adaptation and domestic adaptation. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome, everyone. This is Doug Parsons with America Adapt, the climate change podcast. On today's podcast, we have Dr. Nikhil Advani with the World Wildlife Fund. Nikhil is their senior program manager for their adaptation program. I'm very excited about this guest, WWF. Everyone knows about this group. It's a huge organization, international group. How are you doing, Nikhil? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Nikhil, I'm just going to read this because, you know, I, I like to give a little bit of background on folks, and I'm just going to read it. Normally, I don't like to read things, but, you know, you were actually born in Kenya, and you came to the States, and we don't have to go into the whole history, but you went to the University of Texas at Austin for both your bachelor's and your Ph.D.? Yeah, that's correct. I like to, to refer to it as the great University of Texas at Austin. But, yeah, I was there for um, – 11 years. I did my bachelor's degree and then I did my master's and PhD as well. So I won't even read it. So what did you get your thesis in for your PhD? Well, all my degrees were in ecology, evolution and behavior. And my PhD thesis was on the biological impacts of climate change. I was trying to get a better mechanistic understanding of species response to climate change uh, using a butterfly as a model species. So is that, I'm not familiar with that butterfly. Is that butterfly in the Texas area or did you have to go somewhere? No, it's the Glanville fertility butterfly. It's a European species. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it was really ideal to use, well, butterflies in general are great organisms for looking at the impacts of climate change because they're so sensitive to temperature and climate in general. Uh, and actually, climate is the most important predictor of butterfly species distribution. So when you were living in Austin, did you find that all the uh, A&M people were a bit crazy? Uh, yeah, we were not very fond of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I lived in Austin for two years, and I just found, like, you know, Austin people are loyal, but the A&M people, they were just a different level. It was crazy. Oh, it's, I mean, I hate to use the term, but it's almost like a bit of a cult. Uh, <laughs> right. it's, yeah, it's, they're, they're pretty intense over there. <laughs> yeah. It uh, is a good school. I, I found College Station a bit flat. It was like a former, you know, I don't want to discourage any A&M listeners, but it, I was, you know, it, I think they just built the university in the middle of a pasture or something. So. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. I never made it out there, thank Oh, I went to an ultimate frisbee tournament there um okay enough dissing a&m and so Nikhil, i like to start off each podcast with a little bit of a personal nugget on the the guest and so correct me if i'm wrong here but this is pretty exciting you were tweeted by leonardo dicaprio is that accurate <laughs> i think it was actually on instagram well, Inst well i found that instagram but i think it's all related to his whole his it shows up on his his twitter account too oh, really? so oh, wow. your, your oh. name is mentioned and there's <laughs> leo right above that tagline i mean that is pretty fantastic <laughs> that's something to brag to the family and friends about well that's a funny story i I don't know how I came across it, but I came across the Instagram post of his. And I'd never actually always heard of Instagram, never signed up for it. But the moment I saw that, I figured I have to sign up for Instagram. So I signed up for Instagram. And in Instagram, it's not as easy to repost something. You have to download a separate app to do it. But I got this like regram app. 
and I regrammed his Instagram. And, and ever since then, I've not done anything on Instagram. <laughs> well, I mean, he has something like 9 million followers, I think, on Instagram, on Twitter. And so that's just a whole new ball game. That That's very exciting. And, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, that's something you, you would put in a dating profile. Oh, Leo, you know, <laughs> he's mentioning me. So anyway, that that's actually pretty cool. Well, thanks for letting me know about the Twitter thing. I'll have to look that up. Okay, great. So we have Nikhil on to talk about adaptation. This podcast is all about adaptation, and WWF is a world leader on conservation. We're all familiar with the panda. And so, Nikhil, that's, I want to just jump right into it. And this is a very vague question, but I sort of want to let you kind of run with it for a bit, is what is adaptation like at the World Wildlife Fund? I mean, where are you guys at on it? Well, it's pretty exciting at WWF, and this is probably the most attractive part of the position to me that we have such a big network of offices around the world and such a wide presence that any adaptation work that we're doing, any tools we develop, for example, we can actually apply out in the field, which is different to many of the think tanks, for example, here in D.C. and other places, where they're developing all of these policy guidance documents and tools, but they don't really have a way to test them. They do a really good job of developing them and marketing them, and then they hope that others will pick it up. Whereas when I develop a tool, I'm really doing it as, as more of a learning process for myself. For an example, our vulnerability assessments. There's hundreds of vulnerability assessment methods out there. And I read a really good quote once that the whole purpose of doing or developing a new one is really to, for you as an individual to learn about the process of doing it and what goes into it and really get a much better understanding of it. So the tools that we develop, obviously, I would love for there to be uptake outside of WWF. But the really cool thing is that we have the opportunity to actually apply these tools ourselves. Well, it might get you in a little hot water, but, you know, I've worked with large organizations and, you know, you have some areas that are doing, I, I guess I would call adaptation kind of cutting edge conservation. Do you feel like WWF as a whole has a good process for integration across all the conservation programs to kind of do adaptation planning? I think it really varies. There's, I mean, even if you look at our country offices, there are some that are taking more of a, a leadership role on adaptation issues than others. There are some programs that are doing more than others. But the reality is that adaptation is, is a big experiment at the moment. You know, we're all learning as we go along. It's not something that has established principles that are published in textbooks and things like that. You know, it's something that's constantly evolving. So I think it's, it's a big experiment. I like to think that we are doing a good job of it. But I think like any other organization, we could be doing a better job of it. It's probably safe to say you you don't have any skeptics or deniers in the organization, although it's distinctly possible, but I, you probably don't run across any of those. No, definitely not. And that's that's comforting in the field that, you know, the people that I interact with, you don't really encounter those kinds of people. If people are reluctant about climate adaptation or climate change, it's more because they just don't understand it properly. And it seems a bit overwhelming thinking about how to actually incorporate it into your programming. And and I fully understand that. You know, the, the climate models, for example, you can get there's areas where they do projections. Let's say you're given a projection for 2050 that says it, there's a 15% chance of it getting a lot wetter and there's a 25% chance of it getting a lot drier. It's not easy to prepare for something like that. That's not helpful, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I myself, as, as a climate person, would struggle. I could come up with some ideas. But also the fact that it's so far into the future, it's really hard to get your head around these kinds of things. So I definitely sympathize with people who are not – incorporating it into their work as they should be. Well, I'm curious, too, about WWF. I mean, I guess if you had to distill what you guys do, you're there for the conservation of, of 
biodiversity. I mean, is that pretty fair? I mean, you guys do a bunch of things, but you're there to protect wildlife. And so WWF has become quite a big player on climate change policy. And we've chatted a little bit about this before, but, you know, energy is like the big conversation that's going on on climate change. And, you know, adaptation certainly doesn't get the attention. And I just wonder, is WWF, you know, there's this focus on energy and climate policy. Of course, we have to address those things but like should there be more attention placed on adaptation and maybe you have your own bias because you deal with adaptation but i just try to do both sometimes it's it's you can get a bit of a muddle yeah (laughs) (laughs) hey listen i don't want to put you on the spot regarding but it's more of a discussion of like wow wwf and all its resources could be there on the cutting edge just being a leader on adaptation and of course you are but you know when you get involved with energy that just that takes up a lot of oxygen right Right. Well, there's a couple of things. I'll start off by saying that our, if you look at our mission statement, it definitely includes people and nature okay. uh, living in harmony with each other. So that's a, that's a big part of a lot of the work we do is not focused solely on species, for example, as people tend to think. It's a, a lot of it is working with communities around the world as well. But to address your second question, you know, WWF is a huge organization. And over the years, and I guess this kind of addresses that previous point that I just raised, traditional cons- conservation has shifted over the years. And an organization of our size with our global presence really has the opportunity to influence institutions and governments around the world. So that's where you're talking about climate and energy and mitigation for climate mitigation, for example, that's where we really do have an opportunity to influence some very big actors. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you look at the recent COP, I think we were, I don't know how they come up with these classifications, but we were listed as one of the most influential NGOs at the COP. So it's something that we shouldn't waste that opportunity. And we definitely do a good job of that, influencing uh, things at a very high policy level. But I do agree that adaptation is equally important, if not more important than mitigation. I don't know if you can come up with ways to actually distinguish it, but the reality is at the end of the day, you have to be doing both, right? We're not going to, even if we stopped our emissions to zero today, it's going to take centuries, if not millennia, for the climate system to revert to a normal state. So irrelevant of what we do with emissions, we're going to have to adapt to a changing climate. That said, if we don't do anything about emissions, that gap is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And adaptation has its limits. I want to dig into some of the work that you're doing. WWF is known for a lot of work on charismatic wildlife. You know, you have the panda, but then, you know, elephants and snow leopards and mountain gorillas. And so when you're dealing with adaptation, that in itself must make things a little bit tricky. And so, I mean, first off, just could you share, this is America DAPS, we're talking a lot about what adaptation is going on in America, but we have a lot to learn on what's going on internationally. And so what parts of the world do you work in? And then I'd sort of like to dig in a little bit about this kind of charismatic wildlife approach to adaptation. So we work in almost all parts of the world. I think maybe with the exception of Antarctica, we're on every other continent. So we have a huge presence. And then we have this list of global priority species. And included in that are, you know, in Africa, we've got the African elephant and African rhinos. We have African great apes. In Asia, we have the Asian big cats. We've got uh, orangutans. We've got a lot of marine cetaceans, marine turtles, a few freshwater dolphin species, polar bears, kangaroos in Australia. Hmm. So there's a lot of, there's you know, there's a huge reach for the species that we work on. And it, it's an interesting question. Adaptation for these species is, is a bit different. You know, as I mentioned earlier, organisms like butterflies are highly sensitive 
to changes in climate. These big charismatic megafauna are probably more resilient to what we tend to think of as some of the direct impacts of climate change, like heat waves or longer term increase in temperature or changing water availability. Cats, for example, big cats have very, very minimal freshwater requirements and can tolerate a really wide range of temperatures like the snow leopard. So species like this are, are probably less sensitive to the direct impacts of climate change. And what I think is really at the cutting edge of species and climate work at the moment are these human responses to climate change. And I think that will be the biggest threat to many of these species. So that is how human communities are being impacted by changes in weather and climate, how they're responding to those, and how their responses might be impacting biodiversity and these kinds of species. Okay, so I see. So even though it might not even be climate change that's impacting the species, the sort of the byproduct of how humans are adapting could be bad for these species. That's... Yeah, and I mean, I wouldn't say that climate change isn't impacting species because, I mean, climate change is, is pretty much impacting everything at the moment, right? <laughs> it's, I think it's the extent to which it affects the species and also distinguishing between direct impacts and indirect impacts. Well, could you quickly walk us through how you might do adaptation planning for a particular species? I think you've done some work with elephants in Southeast Asia. Is that right? Yeah. Well, so the first thing we do for the – I've done this for all of the priority species that we work on, and I'm, I'm sort of slowly going along. So far, I've done it for African elephant, Asian elephant, mountain gorilla, snow leopard, polar bear, and monarch butterfly. And the first thing we do is we do a trait-based vulnerability assessment, which you can find on our website. So the idea behind this is you look at traits that make a species either vulnerable or resilient to climate change. And the assessment is divided up into four different categories. The first is sensitivity. So the ability of the species to persist as it currently is under a changing climate. And this looks at things like freshwater requirements, temperature tolerance, habitat specialization. We then look at adaptive capacity which is the ability of the species to respond to changes in climate. And this is where it makes a big distinction from a lot of the models that you see out there, in particular species distribution models, which don't really account for adaptive capacity. So this looks at the ability of the species to disperse in response to a changing climate, so to shift its range, and also to evolve in response to climatic changes. The third thing we look at is exposure, which is just the projected change in climate. And the last thing are other threats and I've already addressed these primary of, to those is the human responses to climate change. So we do these vulnerability assessments, and then based on those vulnerability assessments, we come up. So essentially how I do it is I do a, a pretty extensive literature search myself. I then reach out to species experts, get feedback from them, and the whole process takes a few months, and we, we finalize the assessment. We then come up with management recommendations that are what we're calling climate adaptive management recommendations. And now the next big step is actually trying to implement those in the field. So we already have a few projects that are underway, and we're really trying to make steps in the right direction to, to start piloting some of these in the field. So, you know, I've been involved with vulnerability assessment workshops, and I think each one is different. Everyone sort of approaches it a little bit differently. Some rely on models more so than others. And I'm just curious, you've probably been in these workshops, you've communicated with these experts who do these things. And so you've gone through your process. He says, and have you encountered a situation where, especially a species or maybe a habitat type, where the recommendations that come out of one vulnerability assessment differ than yours? Have you encountered that? I'm sure there are, yeah. I mean, if you, you know, some of these species, there's, there's definitely been a lot of VAs that have been done on them. I will say that automatically the species distribution models 
those are going to give you different results. Those basically project where the species is going to shift its range in the future. And something like that is a lot harder to plan for. The assessment methodology that we have identifies things like fresh water is a big vulnerability for the species. We need to think about providing water for the species during times of severe drought. So the, the recommendations that come out of our vulnerability assessment tend to be more actionable items and over the shorter term. But then there's obviously things like identify climate refugia, which would be in parallel with what the species distribution models do. Well, it's probably still a little early where you're having those sort of conflicts. But I mean, I, I could see, I'm going to say the Nature Conservancy, just another large conservation group. They go through their own process and you're dealing with some developing country and you're both approaching them and saying, okay, you should do these implementation actions. And sometimes they might differ. And then how do you sort of reconcile that? And I know that you you actually have a lot of conversations with the similar folks at these large organizations. But I, I think as people get more involved with adaptation planning, especially when it comes to using models, that you're going to have these conflicts. Yeah, sure. And I think there is going to be a, a, you know, an array of advice out there, and especially when you're talking to governments and such. I think that's one of the, the issues with those the modeling approaches that have these really long-term forecasts. That's where people will likely differ in the recommendations that they're making. I feel like more immediate recommendations, again, going back to the fresh water example, that's a pretty obvious issue. You know, water security for communities and for wildlife is, I think you would speak to any government in, in Africa, for example, at the moment, there's parts of Africa that are in the midst of a massive drought, and they would realize that that's a problem. And I don't think anybody would differ in their recommendation about that. So I think, and I will give a shout out to TNC, you know, I think they've done some really great work in the U.S. There's, in terms of piloting these approaches to adaptation, there's this one example where they're foresting, they're reforesting an area, I think it's somewhere in the northern U.S., using genotypes from a different latitude that they think will be more tolerant of rising temperatures. So I think what they were doing is they would tip, they would Using, I think it's the same species, but they're using genotypes from the southern end of the range and translocating them to the northern end of the range. You know, I think that's up in Minnesota. Molly Cross, yeah. our previous guest, actually used that example. So it's obviously gotten got a reputation as, as being an innovative um, adaptation project. Interesting. Yeah, it's, and I think it was actually funded by the WCS Adaptation Fund. Yeah, that's right. Something like that to me is I think that is, that's where it's really at. That's what we need to be doing. Enough of doing these vulnerability assessments, doing making these recommendations, and we're guilty of that as well, but you do have to do – that you have to do some element of that but people get so caught up in that and they almost seem to think that by doing a vulnerability assessment that's their commitment they're done you know it's as if they have a budget for climate change here we'll do a va or we'll pay a consultant to write a report for us and that's it you know we've, we've done our we're adapting to climate change and that's rubbish you need to actually start taking some steps on the ground and I think those those kinds of projects are really exciting. We briefly talked about this, but I, I want you to bring it up again in re regarding the uncertainty of some of these models. In Africa, I guess some of the models are saying that some areas are going to be wetter than what they are now, and then the reality is different. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Because I, the reason is just when you start dealing with some of the governments or even you get down to the landowner level, they're probably going to just give you some sort of crazy look when you're trying to explain them what the future looks like. Yeah, exactly. And again, it goes back to this criticism of mine of, of over-reliance on climate models and modeling in general. If There's this concept called the East Africa rainfall paradox. And what it is is that almost all the global climate models – 
project that East Africa is going to get a lot wetter. If you go to East Africa now and you tell them that, they'll laugh at you because for the last decade or so, East Africa has had a number of droughts and faced severe water shortage. You, I mean, how are you going to tell people to plan for a wet future when at the moment they're dealing with such dry conditions? It just doesn't make sense. So it just shows you that we can't be overly reliant. I'm not saying these models are useless. I think they have a purpose, but it's just one element of what we need to be considering. And people seem to think that by running these models and producing these fancy maps, again, this goes back to what I just raised, they think that they're doing their bit for climate change, that they're incorporating climate change into their work. But they're really not because no action comes out of those maps or those models that are produced. Yeah, it reminds me. I just saw this movie, The Big Short, that talked about the financial crisis. And it talked about these people thinking that the real estate market was going to crater and everyone thought that they were crazy. And then you know, they invested all this money and they were just waiting, waiting for it to happen. And so it, I guess the similarities is just you tell people that are in the middle of a drought that, all right, you need to start doing specific actions in regarding to a wetter future. You are just going to get, yeah, you're putting people's livelihoods on the line when you're giving that sort of advice. So that must be hard. Yeah, and, and this is where the concept of scenario planning comes in. And I, I think you might have already chatted with some of your previous guests about that. But it's the idea of preparing for different futures, different plausible futures. And that is really important. So you need to have flexible strategies that could accommodate a year that happens to be a really bad drought year, but followed by three years of plentiful rainfall, for example. You need to have strategies that are flexible and that can accommodate this kind of change in the future. One other point about working with charismatic species is that when you do adaptation planning, there, there's this rhetoric of like, okay, you have a toolkit. And so vulnerability assessment is one of the tools that you can do for it. And I'm just curious if you're dealing, I've done vulnerability assessment where we've done species like the marsh snake or the key deer and like the experts are saying, all right, they're all screwed. They're gone. And so what we could, there's a few things that you can do. And I guess the most dramatic thing that they were proposing, translocation, and it's, it's getting a lot more intention where you actually move the species somewhere else. And I think the key deer, but the rest of them, there was a sort of acknowledgement if these this future happens, that these species are going to go extinct in these areas. And that's just a reality. But when you're dealing with the kind of species that you're talking about, I would argue that I guess another tool that you have is like, I guess, zoos or like you really are moving these things to new habitats that you wouldn't really do with other species. And so it is a little bit different when you're, you know, pandas, we are not going to let just kind of disappear, even if their habitat ultimately disappears. Yeah, so that I'm really glad you brought that up. It, this is an opportunity for me to rant about one of my biggest pet peeves in the field of conservation, particularly when it comes to translocation or what we're also referring to as assisted migration in the climate change literature. When you speak, I, I, my biggest, one of my biggest issues with conservation is that it's a very backward looking discipline. And there's a lot of people who are very stuck in their ways. And when you, for example, providing water for elephants, the reality is that it's something that we're going to have to start thinking about. But when you point it out to people, they'll reference some 1995 paper in some random journal citing that that's not a good idea. People, it's a very backward-looking discipline, and people are not willing to experiment. With translocation, for example, humans have been moving species around the world for thousands of years. It's nothing new. Now, granted, on occasion, a species does become invasive, and I distinguish between introduced species and invasive species. Introduced species are species that are not native to a particular area, and invasive is one that actually becomes a bit of a pest species and begins to have an economic cost by introducing it there. I actually think that assisted migration might be a very viable option. You know, if a particular habitat becomes completely unsuitable for a species, 
we need to start identifying habitats that might be good refugia for those species. And one example is what we just talked about with the the TNC example in Montana with the reforestation. Now, granted, that might still be the same species, I think, that they were moving to different areas, but it is still assisted migration, right? They're moving genotypes from one area to another area. And I've read criticisms about that approach, and I think it's just completely ridiculous. I think that, sorry, the, the criticism is ridiculous, because I really think we need to be thinking about thinking out of the box about those kinds of ideas. Interesting. Yeah, I guess the ecological integrity of the landscape, that's been challenged for a long time. And people, yeah, they're trying to, it's that whole pre-1492 mentality, at least in the States, and it creates all sorts of conservation conflict. Yeah. And, you know, this, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that we need to pick up all species and move them. Clearly, this is my thoughts are, again, working at WWF, my thoughts tend to revolve more around these charismatic flagship species. And I think for species like that, it's not a bad idea at all. These are also species that are much easier to contain. For example, I don't think the giant panda risks ever becoming an invasive species somewhere. <laughs> right? Yeah. But there might be habitat that is more suitable, even within China, perhaps. There's habitat that is more suitable for it, where there's less encroachment by humans, for example. And again, to the point that a lot of vulnerability assessments out there, as they look at a broader suite of species, like, you know, with some of the species that you're working with, relocating even to a zoo is not an option. It's more of like, okay, we're, we're comfortable that this species is just going to disappear. I mean, they're not comfortable, but you know what I'm talking about. Like, we can't control and we can't manage all these different species. But when you're dealing with very popular species, that something that you could add to that toolkit is like... Like you said, scenario planning and is one of the scenarios, okay, we are just going to go in and take all those pandas and we're going to stick them in zoos around the world. I mean, that's that's something that's probably, you know, that's going to be discussed, maybe. Yeah, I think zoos is a slightly different issue. I mean, a different a species in the wild versus a species in the zoo is very different. And, you know, there's a few species out there that I think are essentially – something like the the northern white rhino. I mean, they only exist in zoos, and the ones that are in the wild are not really in the wild. It's in a protected area in Kenya. So those are essentially all in the zoo. And what they're trying to do with that species is just trying to get one successful reproduction and mm. in the hope that somehow that species can be kept going. So as a last resort, that's what we often have to turn to. But it's not really a viable option. I think zoos and breeding facilities are somewhat useful, at least in terms of maintaining genetic stock, but we wouldn't ever look at that as a long-term solution. Like we, we wouldn't be happy if these if the species is only living in zoos, then it's classified as extinct in the wild. And for all intents and purposes, we've driven that species to extinction. So it's the same thing with seed banks, right? With plants, that I think it's really important to have these genetic reservoirs for these species. But it's almost a backup more than anything else. I hope we don't get to that point anytime soon. So I'd like to pivot a little bit. WWF is working on a variety of different issues, and we've talked a little bit about, but I was hoping you could maybe expand on this concept of crowdsourcing in your climate change program. So this actually goes back to what I mentioned earlier in the podcast, that a lot of our work is now focused on these human responses to climate change. And a few months ago, we launched our website, wwfclimatecrowd.org. And we're attempting to – it's not the true definition of crowdsourcing in the sense that the people who are collecting data for us will have some element of training. So it's – I mean, we're more than happy for, for the general public to contribute to this. But the kind of information we're looking to get is actually quite detailed, and people will typically need some sort of background knowledge in order to collect it. But we're basically trying to understand how rural communities around the world are being impacted by changes in weather and climate, how they're responding to those changes. And from that, we're trying to – you know, is there any – 
are there any is there any indigenous knowledge local traditional knowledge that we can learn from and learn some novel adaptation techniques but we're also trying to learn how their responses might be impacting biodiversity negatively and i'll give you one example in uh, rwanda wwf supports a group called igcp and during the dry season over there the human communities enter virunga national park to collect water because they used to have these rivers that would flow into their communities and the rivers no longer flow down there so they encroach on the park to collect water but when they do that they often set snares and the snares are typically targeted at antelope but they often end up catching baby mountain gorillas as well hmm. so on, as an intervention igcp is providing rainwater harvesting for these communities so during the dry season they're, they're much less inclined to enter the park because they actually have access to water So I think that's a fantastic example of how human responses to climate change in this case to drought can impact a species like a gorilla which you know gorillas have almost no freshwater requirements they get all their water from the plants they eat so you wouldn't think that changing water availability would impact gorillas but in this case it's impacting the community and it has knock on impacts on gorillas but it's also a really cool example of the interventions that we can have which in this case aren't even focused on the gorillas at all they're focused entirely on the communities so that's the kind of information we're looking to collect and we're working with a variety of partners we're working with the peace corps in about six different countries at the moment and looking to expand so peace corps volunteers the peace corps one's kind of unique because we're also funding projects for them based on their findings so that's pretty exciting we're working with the school for field studies which is in about eight different countries around the world so far we're working with them only in tanzania but looking to expand that as well we're working with GIZ, we're working with UCL, working with USAID and of course working with WWF offices around the world. I mean, I guess the crowdsourcing would you just sort of describe it as a step up from maybe citizen science efforts. I mean, the you really are getting a higher level of scientific information. Yeah, I mean, I exactly. I that's a good description. I would say it's just a step up because you need to have some background knowledge on climate change, for example. to participate in it. And I think even even if the data that you're gathering at the end of the day if it, it's not that great, you, you know, I guess it takes some time to figure out it's going to probably be local where you figure that out, but you know you're engaging a lot of folks and you're exposing them to some of this information and you're getting them involved and so I guess the, as a byproduct, you know, role for this initiative I think it is a positive thing. Yeah, exactly. So with the Peace Corps, one of the things they're most excited about is that climate change is pretty much lacking from most of their training. Hmm. and we're actually so with peace corps it's actually much more than just the data collection we're also having the volunteers do these online courses before they leave so during their as part of their pre departure training and then when they're in country they get a presentation on this kind of on climate change and the kind of information we're looking to collect and at, as part of their first few months at sites they're given this interview protocol to speak to community members to understand the kinds of changes in weather and climate that are occurring in those communities and how the people are responding to them. So the Peace Corps really sees this as a way to integrate climate change into their programming. So you're right, it goes well beyond the data collection. But you know, the data collection is pretty we we screen all the reports before we post them. So if something doesn't look right, we we wouldn't post it. But if you have a look at the website, if you go to again it's www.climatecrowd.org and you go to the data archive, it's pretty cool. You can just type in like flood Kenya and it'll bring up every single report that has those two terms in it. And as we get more and more of this data we'll be able to analyze it and look for particular trends. And so you're actually using it in your work. I mean, this is information that you're tapping into in the the work that you're doing. Definitely. And again, like I said, the one of the exciting things of, about working at WWF is that we have a presence in most of these countries that we're working in with the Peace Corps or School for Field Studies or our other partners. 
so we can actually take that data and integrate it into our own programming. So you said it's a relatively new program. I, I would hope after a year or two and you're having success with it that this is definitely like a, a conference presentation. I mean, you're familiar that even especially domestically, there's these efforts to kind of consolidate information or as you're gathering information. And, you know, I think it's hit or miss on the quality of that. And so if you have success with that, I think people would be very interested in the model that you're using. Definitely. We've we've been a bit reluctant. I mean, well, reluctant in that we don't really have that much data yet. So, so far, we're, we're pitching it more as a tool that exists. But obviously, you know, maybe even a year from now, we will have enough data, and that should really raise the profile of the project. Speaking of conferences, I, I saw you at the National Adaptation Forum last year in St. Louis. I, I've got that right. You were there. Yes, I was. Okay. <laughs> I'm visualizing you. I see your face. I, mean, I was pretty sure. But, and I'm just curious. Adaptation in the United States, It's because that's what I've been doing. I've been doing I did a little bit in Australia, but I've mainly been in the domestic area. And internationally, I just look at those as two very different things. And I'm just curious because you've, sort of, you've been exposed to both a lot more than I have. And I'm just – could you explain the differences and how approaches are going on? I mean, in, in, of course, you don't want to, oh, well, in Kenya, you're doing it like this. But just internationally, it's like a different beast. And I'm just curious if you have some thoughts on what are those differences, why are they different, and your perspective would be valuable. Yeah, and adaptation in general, I, I think you'd find that a lot of the adaptation efforts in many developing countries are actually tend to be more coping mechanisms. It's, it's more reactive. A community is impacted by severe drought, and they adopt this particular irrigation practice, for example, in response to that. I think in a place like the U.S., we have the benefit of a lot more people working on this issue, a lot more funding behind it. And so organizations like the National Park Service are actually being quite proactive and, and doing what we would call proper adaptation planning, where you know they're actually implementing measures that will prepare them or reduce their vulnerability to future changes in climate. So I would say it maybe is a bit more of a proactive approach over here, again, with that TNC example and the reforestation, whereas in developing countries, I think it tends to be more reactive. I would say that's probably the biggest distinction between the two. The other big issue is funding, and this is where the GCF is going to hopefully be a game changer, where they're looking to mobilize tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars a year that will go towards adaptation and mitigation activities in developing countries. And at the moment, they're aiming for a 50-50 split between adaptation and mitigation, which I think is really good. Could you just spell out that acronym just for folks who aren't familiar with it? Yeah, the GCF, I believe it is the Green Climate Fund. I always get mixed up between Green and Global, but I'm pretty sure it's green. <laughs> we get to the point where acronyms are just acronyms now. We have no idea what they originally stand for. And yeah, I, exactly. You know what WWF is. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know how I grow up? It's always going to be associated with wrestling with me, and it takes me <laughs> uh, uh, a second to be like, okay, no, that's not what it is. And I am not – I don't work in international adaptation, but my impression over the last 10 years that there's international aid as sort of an area. Adaptation is slowly creeping in, and I wouldn't say replacing it, but, you know, you look at organizations like the World Bank who have made climate change a priority. It's just like the model now, the platform of how we're going to engage with international aid in a lot of countries is we're going to bring in adaptation. And, I mean, that's probably a major generalization, but it just, I just get that sense that, even in things that might not even be related to climate change, the model of adaptation is like we're pushing it. And 
I might be completely inaccurate in that sort of general assessment. No, I think you're spot on. And just here at home in the U.S., you know, the Obama administration, it, I will say in the first term, I, I wasn't overly impressed by what they did on climate change. But in the second term, it's just been massive. And I think Obama really wants climate change to be one of his legacies when he leaves office. And, and I think it will be. You know, he's in court. He's mandated that there's all these, I forget exactly what, but there's these various timelines that were set out that government projects have to, well, I think one of them was all foreign aid, for example, has to include climate resilience in the projects. All government infrastructure has to start accounting for climate change when they're building, when they're building new projects. And he set out all of these timelines by which they have to start incorporating this. And a lot of other governments are doing this. The German government is doing the same thing. So basically, over time, with organizations like ourselves that apply for funding from these government agencies, if you're not incorporating climate change into the work you're doing, you're not going to get funded. So we need to wrap up soon, but I wanted to just one other topic, and this is dear to my heart. I, I like talking about adaptation, and I think it's a somewhat complex topic that the public is going to have a hard time rallying around, but it's going to dominate what we do for the next 100, 200 years, and WWF is – the king of marketing. You guys are just fantastic. You run with things. You get you create buzz around issues. And I'm just curious. You are a scientist. You're not a communication person, but inevitably you're asked to do communication. Do you feel like WWF has really got their heads around communicating adaptation well? And if they're not quite there yet, do you have recommendations? I mean, I mean everything. I'm sure you're kind of put on the spot. You have a communication team. That's how a big organization works. And they come to you and say, what do you have for us? We need something on the this elephant. Give us something that we can use to create videos with. And so I'm, I'm just curious what's going on with WWF and communication and adaptation. We, like you said, we have a massive sort of media machine over here. And, you know, they're really good at getting the word out of the work that we're doing, getting us placements in, in very respectable international publications. Earlier this year, my climate cry project was featured in The Guardian. I'm currently doing a series with Inside Climate News on species on the move. So there's, you know, they, they have this ability to get us these pl uh, placements in, in really prestigious publications. And, and I like to think that we do the work that backs that up. It's not just, I think some people are tempted to think that, oh, it's just all show. But news outlets are not going to keep coming back to you unless they realize that you're actually doing this work. So I think they have a, you know, that reach of ours is, is obviously really impressive. It really gets our name out there. And yeah, I think that adaptation will be coming more and more to the forefront. I think last year in particular was really dominated by the Paris COP mm -hmm. and countries coming to an agreement to limit their emissions. So really a lot of the talk last year was about mitigation uh, and justifiably so. But now that Paris has happened, people need to actually start you know, thinking about, well, A, obviously reducing their emissions. But if you looked at all the, the INDCs that were submitted by countries, by developing countries at the COP, most of them were focused on adaptation because those guys don't really need, I mean, they obviously have mitigation commitments, but for them, the big thing is adaptation. And as I mentioned earlier, the Green Climate Fund is going to have at least 50% of its financing devoted to adaptation. So adaptation is slowly coming to the fore, and I think it's just a matter of time. I mean, I, we, we shouldn't see this. I think people are tempted to see this as a competitive thing of, of mitigation versus adaptation, and it absolutely isn't. I mean, the big issue is when people think of climate change and they think of it as one thing. The reality is mitigation and adaptation are quite different. We're both working towards similar goals, but they are two different disciplines. And I think people need to realize that. And people also need to stop using terms like we can stop climate change because that's not going to happen. 
not within our lifetimes. Oh, man, I don't think I've heard that recently. That's terrible. Yeah. No, I mean, I've come across a few articles that say that, and it, it's just unacceptable. <laughs> well, well, I'm not quite sure how your media team works, but I would encourage you, if you haven't already, is like, you know, you get involved with things like a scenario planning workshop. And so getting some of your media people to go to those things, because I'm sure some of the topics around adaptation, they're like, oh, my gosh, this is so boring. How do we turn this into like good communication piece? But if you get them, and I think scenario planning could lend itself to some really interesting uh, communication strategies. And so um, some of the more sciencey stuff, I'm not quite sure if they jump in with you, but I, I would encourage you wherever you can so they could truly get their heads around it yeah and actually they've been reaching out to us recently over the last few weeks to find out throughout the organization where people have committed speaking events and i think this is part of their comp strategy to be able to actually track that and provide media attention to it if need be so at the for example at the iucn world conservation congress in hawaii we're going to have at least one or two media representatives over there Great. Well, and you also, I had mentioned earlier, Leonardo DiCaprio, maybe he'll be tweeting about you sometime soon, but you know, <laughs> you think about these ambassadors that you have and you, it's like you said, it's all the emission content and then it's to a lesser extent, but it's still quite a bit is like climate impacts. And the, I mean, that's the sexy things like what are we, you know, sea level rise. And these are all part of things that drive adaptation planning, but you know, making that leap to like, what are people doing on the ground? And I think you're seeing a little bit more of that, but just, have some high-profile ambassador really walking people through that. I mean, that that would be great because it's it, what you're doing is sort of it's going to be the future, and uh, it's not getting enough attention. Yeah, we have you know we have these global ambassadors. We have um, there's Leonardo DiCaprio, Jared Leto, um, I think in England, Andy Murray, and it's really helpful to have these kinds of people on board. And it's kind of funny, you know, when you do, it's not as if we can ask them to do anything we want them to do, but when they do happen to retweet us or regram a picture of ours, it's actually a pretty big deal because the reach of that is massive. Oh, it's crazy. Like I said, 9 million followers, whatever. That's, it's dazzling. To become a Hollywood star, you know, we need someone to become a Hollywood star that's now an adaptation planner. That could, that could solve, <laughs> solve all our problems. Well, listen, I know you've got to go soon, and I want to wrap this up, but I'd like to give the guest the, the final word. Any other parting thoughts, and then I'll just wrap it up. But uh, any, any final thoughts? And thanks again for joining us. Or joining me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. I would say my my final thought on all of this is that I don't think we're doomed. I think that most of my focus is on species and climate. And I think a lot of species actually have the ability to to cope with some of these changes that we're seeing. In some cases, it might need human interventions. In other cases, they probably have the natural capacity to adapt. But we have to facilitate that. We have to ensure that their habitats are, are pristine and that they have space to roam, for example. And on their own, some of them might be able to tolerate these changes. But also, we need to become, we really need to start implementing stuff on the ground. I think that the whole field of adaptation, there's just been far too much talk about vulnerability assessments and workshops and reports, and there's just very, very little happening on the ground. And I really hope that the GCF financing coming along will change that. But I think all of us really need to just get out there and start getting some stuff done. So that would be my final message. I, I know that people think that this field is all doom and gloom, but there's some pretty cool stuff going on out there, like that rainwater harvesting example in Rwanda I gave you, that shows you that things might not be all that bad. Hopefully people can, can see this with a bit of a 
positive lens. But yeah, other than that, thanks a lot for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right. Well, great. Thanks. What a great final message. I agree. Adaptation is something, you know, hopefully you can rally the world around. And all the things that we talked about, I'm going to have on our webpage, americadaps.org, and I have links to WWF and the various climate change things that we talked about here and a little bit more information. Nikhil, and that said, thanks again, Nikhil. And until next time. Yep. Thanks, Doug. Take care. Thanks for joining us today on America Adapts. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast on iTunes. Just look up America Adapts. And also like us on our Facebook page with the same name. There's more information about the World Wildlife Fund and Nikhil's work at our website at americadapts.org. If you would like to contact me about potentially being a guest, please email me at americadapts at gmail.com. Thanks again.